You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with the show this week, it certainly has been a week to remember across the United States as protests and demonstrations continue after the murder of George Floyd. And while I'm not going to make a political statement by any stretch of the imagination, I will say that the military is the one place where we really preach and learn true diversity. You know, we are forced to serve with people who come from all walks of life from all over the world, and they are part of our great military. And in that, we learn to serve alongside those people and form bonds that last a lifetime. That's not by accident, everybody. It's because of what we do how we do it, and how we treat each other. And that is a lesson that we can pass on to other Americans that we understand what it means to love the person next to you and offer your life up to the person next to you because that's exactly what our job is. So that is a message I think that we can send out to everybody across America and we can continue to show the world why we are the greatest fighting force but also why we are a great example of diversity. With that, we want to continue to grow this Hazard Ground community. Make sure you guys subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're already past 1,000 subscribers. Let's get it up to two. As well, follow us on all the other social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Keep up with the show and certainly be able to reach out to us on any of those mediums, and we'll respond to you guys. Finally, our promotion with Amazon. You know about it. You've heard us talk about it plenty of times before. Go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. Do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and we'll donate it right back to some of the great charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. So again, we hope everybody is staying safe, everybody is healthy and well, and we are continuing to spread that message of diversity to all of our fellow Americans. God be with everybody. And now on to this week's episode. And joining us this week on the podcast is a retired Marine who had two deployments, one to Iraq and one to Afghanistan, where he was injured in his second deployment to Afghanistan. After recovering from his injuries, he went on to be a bronze medalist in the Paralympics. He ran multiple marathons, concluded a cross-country bike ride, and is currently running for Congress in Virginia's 10th Congressional District. He is Rob Jones joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Rob, welcome, brother. Thanks for being here, man. Hey, thanks for the opportunity to come talk to you. All right, certainly know your time is precious because we are in an election year, so you got a lot to do, and I certainly thank you for uh, spending some time with us today. But let's start back at the beginning because, actually, you were a college graduate before you got into the military. So kind of what was the reasoning behind why you sort of shifted gears? I was on my way to being a college graduate. I actually uh, joined during my junior year at Virginia Tech, and, uh, you know, I, I, had, I was about what, 20 years old. And I had gotten to a point down at Virginia Tech where I wasn't doing that great in my uh, preferred major, which was computer science. And I felt lonely, and I felt a little bit like a failure, uh, and I felt isolated, and I felt like there were things missing from my life that I couldn't figure out what they were. And then uh, a buddy of mine had just joined the Marine Corps the year before, and so I started researching a little bit about the Marine Corps just to see what it was all about. And during the process of that, I read this book called Brotherhood of Heroes about the Battle of Peleliu in World War II. And that book just struck a chord with me uh, when I finished it. And, you know, I read about 
these Marines are willing to put their lives on the line for their brothers and their, for their country. And I realized the pieces that were missing from my life were courage, brotherhood, and selflessness and, and other things like that. And so I, you know, once I think the next day after I finished reading that book, I went down to the uh, recruiter's office and uh, he wasn't there. The recruiter, uh, the Marine Corps recruiter wasn't there. And then uh, on my way out, the Air Force recruiter tried to uh, lure me into his office, but I had already decided <laughs> on the Marine Corps at that point. So uh, do, do me a favor and get the Marine Corps recruiter to call me when he comes in. And he did. And uh, I think I was at MEPS maybe a week later before telling my parents. <laughs> what did the Air Force recruiter say to you to try to sway you? Uh, he just, I think he probably noticed that I, you know, was determined to join the Marine Corps. So he didn't really try particularly hard. But uh, I think he said, you know, oh, yeah, you know, uh, Sergeant King's not here right now. Uh, but, you know, if you want to come in here, I can I can tell you a little bit about the Air Force if you want. And I said, no, you know, I, I've decided Marine Corps uh, is what I want. And he, so he, uh, he said, all right, yeah, I'll have Sergeant King call you. As long as they get a guy in the military, I don't think they really care that much. Right. <laughs> so you had done your research on the Marine Corps. When you went to boot camp, was it everything you thought it was going to be? It was, you know, I, I was excited to, I, I just wanted to be a Marine and, you know, I did the 92 day reserve program with the intention of finishing college and then applying to OCS. Um, and so, you know, I had a half a semester to, or a full semester to, to prepare. Uh, I did the delayed entry program. So I was doing these, you know, pulley events once a month, uh, running, doing pull-ups, you know, just preparing myself to be a Marine. And I've read a couple books about, uh, about boot camp, watched videos, you know, all this stuff. And so when I got there, I kind of knew what it was going to be like. So it didn't surprise me, uh, that much. The hardest part about boot camp for me was, um, not being able to go to the bathroom whenever I wanted to. <laughs> Cause they make you drink so much water yeah. and it's just having to hold your pee the entire for three months straight. <laughs> now you enlisted as a combat engineer, correct? Yeah, so uh, the reserve unit that I joined that was right up the road in Roanoke, Virginia from Blacksburg uh, was a combat engineer uh, unit. So, you know, they just put me in as that. Okay, so is that what you wanted to do or it was just because you were going to be stationed close to home? Um, You know, I don't remember really having much of a... A say? A a desire for any particular job. I think I just wanted to do something where I was going to be fighting. So I think uh, I was interested in tanks. I was interested in being a radio operator with the intention, you know, maybe I would be a radio guy for, uh, you know, a line unit or something. And then they said, well, the reserve unit closest to you is combat engineers, so you just have to be a combat engineer. And I was like, okay. Now, we had two wars going on at this point in time. Any objections from family, friends, loved ones? What are they? Did they think you were crazy for wanting to do this, especially being so close to finishing college? Yeah, probably. I mean, I, when I told my dad, I think he said, his, his, I said, Dad, I joined the Marine Corps. And he said, why? <laughs> and, that kind of, <laughs> and that kind of tone. Uh, but they, but you know, everybody that I told, you know, I, I said, you know, this is the reason. And uh, the reason was that I, what I told you. And, you know, I just said, okay, you know. And then, obviously, I, they were concerned. Um, but they, you know, they were they were proud of me. And they accepted accepted the reason that I wanted to do it. And we all moved on. You know, I was 20 years old, so I didn't have to get permission or anything. Um, but, you know, yeah, everybody everybody was was proud of me, I think. All right, so you signed but up. But obviously concerned. 
No, yeah, sure. That, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. You sign up in 2007, and it's basically a year or a little bit more than a year later, you end up in Iraq, correct? Yeah, well, I joined in 2006, technically. But, okay. Uh, so uh, 2008, uh, we were in Iraq, yeah. But, I mean, I volunteered for that deployment um, in 2007 when I was in combat engineer school. So the way I did it was 92-day uh, reserve is you do boot camp during summer, and then uh, go back to college, and then you finish the rest of your, you know, basic training, so MCT and uh, job school the next summer. So when I was at MCT and job school, my reserve unit was taking volunteers to go to Iraq in 2008, so I volunteered. All right, so does that mean, like, me. you didn't have to go look for a job? Did this work out where right, right after you graduated, you went on to deploy? Was it, like, the timing that convenient, so to speak? Not quite. Uh, well, no, actually, yeah. Um because I was just wondering, so I mean, you, you graduated I, it, college, so you didn't have to go look for, were you were looking for jobs? Like, because so, you were reserved, so were you looking for jobs on the outside world, or what No, was I wasn't. On? Yeah, so it did work out. It did work out that, uh, so I went, I graduated, and then, you know, I went to college on student loans and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I had money. I didn't, I didn't work during college. Uh, but I joined, and then summer of 2007, went to job school and all that stuff, so I was getting a paycheck from the Marine Corps. And then I think my unit went to uh, 29 Palms to do our workup uh, August of 2007. So, yeah, I kind of went from job school directly to uh, to the deployment. So, yeah, I didn't have to worry about working until after I got back. What were you uh, told leading up to that deployment as far as mission set? Uh, what were you going to be doing? Did you know where you were going to be going? What do you remember? We knew we were going to be going to Havania, Iraq. Okay. Um, I think when we once we got to Twenty Nine Palms, they were like, "All right, we're going to a place called Havania." Uh, and so we started looking up videos and that kind of thing. And Havania was pretty. Uh, it was close to it's close to Ramadi and Fallujah, so it mm -hmm. was pretty hot back in you know when those battles were going on. Oh, seven oh eight, yeah. To, uh, yeah, when we got to Havania, it had pretty much it been pretty well pacified. So the uh, the mission. We didn't know exactly what the mission was going to be. Uh, we were kind of going off of what our our senior Marines had experienced in 2005 on their deployment uh, to uh, somewhere now, I think, Hit and a couple other places. And so, uh, you know, when we got there, it was primarily um, building Iraqi police stations and doing a lot of uh, weapons cache sweeps. So, you know, my fire team would get pushed out to a FOB for a few months, and we'd just run operations with those, uh, with the infantry units that were out there. And they would just take us along as their weapons cache, uh, finding, you know, people. So they'd cordon off an area, and me and uh, another guy would just take our metal detectors and, and sweep every square inch of that, that area until we were, we either decided there wasn't anything there, or we found whatever whatever weapons cache is buried there. All right, a couple of things here. Uh, you mentioned the Marines who were before you. 05, 06 is when all those Marines were, you know, savagely killed in, in Fallujah and Ramadi and the bridge incident. You can, guys can Google it if you don't know what I'm talking about, but most people do. So you had that in your mind. Plus, you're going out there looking for IEDs, so to speak, as the most dangerous form of, you know, what the enemy is doing to us. Any of this mm -hmm. sort of bring out any fear in you at all about what you were about to enter? Yeah, I mean, we were expecting on that deployment, based on what our, our seniors were saying, uh, 
we were expecting to be slinging lead left and right, and yeah, IED strikes all over the place. And yeah, you know, it's kind of one of those things where a person knows that it's going to be a dangerous situation and you could be killed or you could be maimed um, and you could lose some friends. But when you're going into it, you can't really think like that. You kind of have to put that aside and say, well, yeah, I also have to have this attitude. Well, it's not going to be me. Um, because if you go into it thinking that it's going to be you that gets killed, you're just going to be pretty much not very operationally effective. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you have to put those thoughts aside and just do your job. Uh, and, you know, whatever comes will come. Um, so I don't remember feeling a whole lot of fear uh, leading up to it. Uh, but there was that kind of expectation that, that we were going to be doing some fighting. And to be honest with you, I, I wanted to get in some firefights just like any other Marine, uh, because I know that's that's where the brotherhood comes from. That's where the courage comes from. That's where the, the selflessness comes from. Those are the things that I was uh, pursuing. When you are on this deployment and you're searching for IEDs and everything else, do you kind of does any one stick out that you find that you remember? Like any one particular situation stay with you? Well, we didn't really. There weren't really any IED finds uh, in in Iraq. Um, the, the, so I guess the one that would the one that would stick out to me was the one strike that we that there was where uh, two marines were killed um and that was the only ied strike that we experienced on the entire time so that would probably be and i wasn't involved with that one you know that happened you know i wasn't there and but uh so that would you know that strike kind of came kind of mid-deployment after we realized things weren't as hectic as we thought they were going to be and that kind of brought it back home uh so that we knew you know it's not quite as as kinetic as we were thinking, but you can still be killed out here, and you can still be hurt. Uh, it just takes that instant, you know, one guy shoots at you and it hits you, or there's an old IED buried somewhere. So uh, that kind of brought it back to reality. The guys that were killed, you didn't know them? There was nothing sort of, you know, personal attachment to you? No, I didn't. I didn't really know them personally uh, all that well. I probably had done a couple things with them in the workup and maybe a couple operations or something like that. But um, I did. Yeah, I didn't really know them uh, on a personal level. A couple of the other engineers did, um, but uh, yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't really know them that well. I'm always curious about how it hits people. You know, the guys who did know them well that you knew. Um, you know, what was their reaction to it? Well, a couple of the guys that knew them had to go out there and and, and help, uh, you know, help help do the uh, the cleanup oh, really? uh, of the of the blast. Yeah, and so I have no doubt that um, that affects them to this day, just having to having to see those images. And you know, the the engineers, uh, my buddy Ronnie and my other buddy Daniel, um, they were the ones that were kind of helping out the infantry that day. And they kind of took it upon themselves to do a lot of the uh, the more morbid stuff because they realized that the infantry guys were even closer to those two those two Marines that were killed. Um, so they just wanted to do anything they could to help uh, you know, help reduce the trauma there. But uh, I mean, it's it's it, to put it in civilian terms for people, you know, if you 
it's not a whole lot different from if you're if you a friend gets killed in a car accident it's added out of the blue out of nowhere and then you have to go clean up their body yeah uh, so it's just that kind of level one and obviously uh, an IED blast is going to be messy just so much more you know nasty and uh you know that kind of situation than a, than a car accident so that that's kind of what it's like just it comes out of the blue you don't expect it at all and then when it hits you it's you know it's, it's your best friend and just in an instant they're gone as far as that first deployment was concerned, when does it get to kind of be routine for you looking for IDs and, and things of that nature? Because, I mean, I imagine at the beginning there's a little bit of nerves involved in it, but then it starts to kind of settle in and becomes routine. Was that the case for you? It didn't take long, you know, a month and a half or something before where not a whole lot really was going on. And like I said, we didn't, we weren't in, in Iraq. We really weren't looking for IEDs that much, um, if at all. Uh, so our, our main job was doing these weapons cache sweeps and we knew that the weapons caches could possibly be booby trapped. Um, but we hadn't found any that, that were. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the feeling of danger significantly reduced, uh, after that first month, month and a half where, you know, you just have this pattern of just finding buried weapons that aren't really dangerous or anything. And you're not going out on, on IED sweeps. You're not getting into any firefights. So, you know, you try not to get complacent, obviously. But at the same time, you know, you kind of get into this routine. Um, and then, the, you know, the level of danger feels a lot less uh, than it was when you first got there. All right, so you get back from Iraq. Uh, when, you know, month and year time frame is this? So we were Iraq from January 08 to August 08. Okay. Um, so to that end, uh, you now have to go back to your regular life, right? Because you're a civilian. You're not, you're not active duty as part of the reserve. So what's next for you? Pretty much. I mean, I didn't really have a, a regular life established at that point because, you know, I graduated college. And so I really hadn't really got, had a chance to establish anything that you would call a regular life. So... And I didn't have a place to live or anything. So, you know, I just lived with my parents for a couple of weeks. Uh, and I just found an apartment in Blacksburg uh, and started looking for work, sort of. Um, I didn't look that hard, uh, partly because I had a big, you know, kitty built up from from the deployment, mm-hmm. you know, money. So I had I had a lot a lot of savings to live off of. And I also knew that my unit was going to be sending a unit to a, a, a volunteer platoon to Afghanistan relatively soon. So I, I kind of knew that I was going to be deploying uh, relatively quickly. I didn't know exactly when. Um, so I didn't look that hard for, for a job. I just kind of, you know, put some applications out there just for something that I knew wouldn't be a long-term occupation. Uh, and I found something maybe three, four months before we ended up deploying, I was putting out, uh, road counting devices for, uh, it was a, a company contracted by VDOT. So whenever, every time you run over these little tubes in the road and you see a little box mm-hmm. off to the side, that's what I would go out and put those out. Um, and then we'd go out and collect them and they're just kind of doing road studies and that kind of thing. Yeah. Aren't they so testing for how fast people took. are driving? 
it measures it, but it okay. doesn't. It's not like it's you know, you're going to get a ticket off of it. It's no, yeah, I know. Using it as data. But yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, They're trying to see how fast people are driving through a certain area if it needs a stop sign or a speed bump or whatever, right? Um, I, that's. It's that's part of what they're doing. So they're getting the speed, they're getting uh, the class of vehicle. So whether it's a two axle vehicle or however many axles are on it, uh, how many vehicles are on a certain road. Um, so it's just they just get the data so they have it based so they can decide you know when they're going to be doing road maintenance and that kind of thing on on the roads. Gotcha. So it's just data collection. Okay. Anyway, I was just curious. All right. So yeah, uh, yeah. So. Don't don't worry. You're not going to be getting a ticket or anything. <laughs> so you start work up for your second deployment, and did they tell? When did they tell you you're going to Afghanistan? Did you know this ahead of time? We I'm trying to remember. I mean, when I volunteered, we knew it was. I was pretty certain it was going to be an Afghanistan deployment. They obviously didn't know for sure. Um, I don't really remember what I was thinking and what I knew at that time. I just knew that supposedly we were going to go to Afghanistan. I knew that Afghanistan was more kinetic than Iraq at that time. And so I knew I wanted to go. And I knew that my buddies were volunteering as well. So we all kind of wanted to to stick together and do the same thing. Um, But nothing was official, but we just kind of, that was, that's kind of what we were hoping for, and that's kind of what we were expecting. Gotcha. Um, so when do you get to Afghanistan? So we do the workup for Afghanistan in the winter of 2009, and then we get to Afghanistan April of 2010 when we got there. So we kind of did this workup maybe starting in December of late December 2009, and did a workup all the way until uh, right before April. So then we get to Afghanistan April 2010, yeah. All right. What was your mission there this time around? Yeah, uh, similar uh, in terms of its scope. So it's basically combat engineer that's attached to an infantry battalion. Uh, and we have the metal detectors. We have the expertise in IED detection, uh, weapons cache detection, explosives. So basically, those are our expertises, and however the infantry wants to use those, we do that. And so in Afghanistan, uh, a lot of the IEDs uh, that are getting made are made from homemade explosives. So instead, of, so there's not a whole lot of weapons caches around uh, to find. So we weren't really looking for weapons caches this time. So our primary role in Afghanistan was the uh, IED detection route clearance um, angle of things. Did you feel on this deployment that you were much more prepared than you were on your first, even though the environment was going to be different? Uh, yeah, definitely. I Yeah, just because I had that, that first deployment under my belt. So in terms of, you know, having your, you know, being able to get your gear together, being able to react in stressful situations, um, and just having more life experience and more experience as a Marine. And obviously I was a team leader on this one. Um, so there's always something new that you're doing that you're, you've never done before. Um, but in terms of IED detection, not as much because we didn't get to do a whole lot of IED detection in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And then the IEDs were so different 
than the ones in Iraq as well. So that was still something that we nobody really had a lot of experience with uh, outside of training. All right. So what's day to day life like? You get there in April um, and you don't get injured till July. So kind of give me the routine as you were going through it, because it kind of just sets the stage for, you know, the events leading up to what happened to you. Yeah, so when we first got there, uh, we were in a place called uh, Delaram. And so it was actually a, pretty similar to what we were doing in Iraq, where the engineers got pushed out to all these different fobs where the uh, there was either a platoon-sized infantry unit or a company-sized infantry unit there. And they were just running security operations in the area. And um, I think there's maybe one or two firefights. There was a few IED fines, uh, none where I was. Um, but yeah, it was, it was basically just pretty pretty well pacified uh, in the area that we were in. And so we were just kind of in this holding pattern a little bit. So what, what we were going to be doing was kind of securing this Delaram area, passing that over to the Georgian Army, and then we were going to move to a uh, to this place called Sangin. Uh, that the British had been in charge of. We were going to take over from them and start pushing uh, into Taliban territory and start start seizing some uh, Taliban strongholds over there. So the first few months, first two, three months, were uh, this Delaram, kind of how you have your established FOB and you're doing security patrols, uh, you know, twice a day. And then uh, while we waited to, to go and do these uh, these pushes. Just out of curiosity, what was more stressful or tense for you, the firefights or trying to find the IEDs? <laughs> uh, probably, it's hard to say. I would say getting shot at might have been a little bit more stressful. I would think so. <laughs> um, it's hard to say. I mean, it's pretty equal. They're, 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 they're both stressful, I'll say that. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's just different types of stress. I mean, one, I, I yeah. I, let me phrase it this way: Where did you feel like you had more control in a firefight? Or... I, I think probably, obviously, I think I felt like I had more control uh, in the IED detection. Sure, yeah, that's, that's what I would lean towards. I guess that's kind of just a better way to, to to phrase it and look at it because, as unpredictable as combat can be, I guess there is some sort of sanity in. Uh, knowing exactly what you're doing step by step and in, in trying to figure out if something is an IED or not. Yeah, but then at the same time, we kind of knew that the Taliban that we were fighting wasn't really that good at firefighting. Yeah. So they would just kind of <laughs> shoot at us from a thousand yards away, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would launch, try and launch mortars and that kind of thing. And it, so it didn't really feel like we were in that much danger when they were shooting at us. Um, but they were really good at hiding IEDs. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's hard to say. I, you know, I, I don't. I wouldn't say one was more stressful than the other. Okay, so July twenty second, uh, two thousand ten. What is that day like? Is it when you wake up? Is it a normal morning? Is it sort of routine? Take me through the events. So, like I said, we moved into Sangin uh, and taken over from the Brits. And what we were doing was, we were just we're doing these things called pushes. You know, you basically just take all your guys. And you start walking into Taliban territory, and if they decide to shoot at you, 
you shoot back and kill them or shoot back until they retreat. And then you just keep moving forward. Uh, and then what we would do is just seize compounds. So on these pushes, uh, we were, we would launch line charges to get through these IED belts that we had identified through intelligence, uh, and clear them out with mine, mine rakes and mine rollers and that kind of thing. We'd walk through there and then the combat engineer role would be to sweep the uh, compounds that we were going into, check the entrances and check all, check it all out to make sure that there weren't any IEDs buried in there. And then we would, once we kind of did that, we would get set up uh, and start kind of digging in with these, uh, these compounds and putting sandbags up and getting them set up as forward operating bases. And then we would spend a couple weeks doing security patrols. So we did one of these pushes, established ourselves, did a couple weeks of security patrols, and then we were doing this second push, and that's what July 22nd of 2010 was. And so it was sort of normal in that we had done this process before with the push and seizing compounds and all that. Um, but it wasn't like we did this every day. This is only the second time we had done it uh, in this area. So... Basically, I was attached to a squad that was providing security for a vehicle column. And so our job was basically just to kind of skirt along the outside of the vehicle column, looking out for ambushes that may be laying in wait for it. And um, I think around 1 o'clock, we laid down to uh, take a rest, stood back up, and our point man stepped on an, an IED that malfunctioned, uh, did a low order detonation, so just a blasting cap exploded, didn't initiate the, uh, the main charge of the IED. And so, as you know, as most people know, where there's one ID, there's probably two or three or four. Mm -hmm. So basically, that became an area where we figured there was pretty much definitely going to be an IED. Uh, it was kind of like a little bit like in the movies where you have to make your way through a minefield. Uh, so it's kind of, you know, not exactly the same thing, but it was essentially this little mini minefield that we had to walk through. And so that's my specialty is getting us through that area. And so, you know, immediately I got my metal detector out and started working through that area and trying to find us a route when I stepped on the uh, the IED that worked the, the second area, the tertiary or whatever it was. When you step on it, what do you remember feeling? Um, well, I was immediately knocked unconscious for about 20 seconds. So, you know, it, it was kind of like... Uh, I was doing my job one instant, and then I'm immediately teleported um, to this other state of being where I'm on my back, and you know all I can hear is my own screaming and this really loud ringing in my ears. Uh, all I can see is a blurry tunnel, you know, up, that goes up to this this you know bright blue sky. Uh, you know I, what I smelled and I tasted. I just smelled and tasted dust. And there's kind of a distinct smell from a recent explosion that you can kind of pick up. Yeah. Um, this kind of chemically stench. So I could smell that. And then my legs felt like, you know, they had been, they had fallen asleep, but magnified by about, I don't know, a couple hundred times. So it's kind of this painful numbness that I felt in my legs. And so that's kind of the, the first 30 seconds after I wake up, is just this screaming and I'm feeling all these things. And then um, after a short period of that, my body started to get control again. 
and I guess endorphins, you know, started to go through. So I, I kind of calmed down and then I could, my senses started to come back. And that's when, you know, my fellow Marines were yelling out to me that they were coming, that I was going to be okay and all these things. And then, um, they came over to me and started doing the, you know, they did, uh, tourniquets. The corpsman eventually got there and gave me morphine and put one of those little nose tubes into my nose so it could clear my airway. And then, you know, they just kind of, uh, got me ready. I got me onto a stretcher, got me fixed, uh, not necessarily fixed up, but stopped the bleeding, got me uh, as stabilized as I was going to be, got a stretcher, took me to a tank, tank. Uh, and that's when they put me unconscious again, uh, for good. And then from what I understand, the tank went and met a helicopter and then did a casualty back. Do you remember talking to anybody? Remember asking any questions? Yeah. So, um, when I first woke up, and then once everybody got over there, you know, I started, they gave me the morphine that kind of loosened my lips a little bit, uh, to start talking. And so my first concern was the, uh, the status of my groin area. And so I, uh, well, actually the first thing I checked was my hands and I saw that they were fine. I had all my fingers and then, uh, I felt between my legs to see this, you know, check the status down there. Uh, like most men probably do. Rob, it's funny that you bring that up because that's one of the anecdotal things I found out from three years of doing this podcast of everybody who gets blown up, every male who gets blown up, the first thing you check is your junk because that's the one non-negotiable, right? I I can live without legs. (laughs) I can live without arms. If you take that away, we have a whole different set of problems that we need to discuss. I think that is the general feeling uh, with with most men. Yes. yeah, you don't want to be half the man uh, and, you used you know, to be. My literally, heart certainly goes out to out to the guys that um, you know experience that kind of that kind of injury. Um, I'm, I'm I'm lucky that when I so when I um, I felt down there and it was very numb. So my assumption was, uh, you know, it was missing. Uh, things were missing down there, and so that was kind of the first thing that I said it was like, you know, I think it's gone, and. Um, this guy Jackson or Johnson uh, was. Uh, he said, uh, "You know, it's, you're fine. You're fine down there. Uh, you know, in fact, I can touch it for you if you want." And that made me laugh a little bit at the same time. Uh, and then, so at that point, I said, "You know, are my legs amputated above or below the knee?" And they said they're a couple inches below. Uh, and then at that point, I actually asked them to uh, go ahead and kill me. I said, "You know, I don't really want to live." like this. So just put a bullet through my grape and just put me out of my misery. And that was based on a, you know, I was obviously high on morphine at the same time and in shock. And that was based on a very naive assumption about what life is like as an amputee. And so, um, but by the time I left, they said, you know, obviously they said they weren't going to do it. Um, and by the time I left, when I woke up again, uh, I don't, there hasn't been a single time that I've considered, uh, taking that, taking that Avenue. Um, and so that's, and that's kind of, that's pretty much everything I remember. So when you wake up next, where are you? Germany? Are you back in the States? What, what do you remember? Germany. Yeah. Uh, you're not supposed to wake up in Germany. In fact, <laughs> I was really only there overnight. There's a lot of people uh, who, by the way, you're not alone. There's a lot of guys I've talked to have woke up in Germany. Yeah. You know, I, from what I understand, you're not really supposed to wake up there, but I did very briefly. 
And when I was there, my squad leader was had just so happened to be there for his own injuries, uh, minor injuries. Um, so he was there, and he that's where he kind of broke the news to me officially uh, that I was above the knee uh, amputated. Because um, a lot of the times, you know, the infections necessitate higher levels of amputations, or there's no viable tissue left below the knee. So they just, in order to wear prosthetics, they know that you just have to amputate where you can. Um, so he tells me that, and then on his way out, uh, I asked him for, to do, to, uh, to find a funny hat for me. Cause my, I was thinking, you know, at that point I was thinking about the other people in my life and I thought, you know, my mom is going to be absolutely devastated. So maybe if when I show up and she sees me for the first time, if I'm wearing a, if I'm wearing a stupid hat, she will, um, won't focus she'll be, on your legs. She'll laugh at that. <laughs> yeah. Hat. yeah, she'll 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 see this and be like, "What the heck is this?" Um, it'll just help to take the edge off a little bit. But uh, they weren't able to find one, believe it or not, in a, a trauma hospital. Uh, but when I got to Bethesda three days later, uh, they rolled me out of the ambulance, and my mom's there, and she had a pirate hat for me. Oh, that's nice. So, so it all kind of worked out in the end. Uh, I think my plan kind of succeeded. I don't know if it was somebody had told her that I'd asked for that or, you know, how exactly that came to be. Uh, but, you know, a mission accomplished there, I guess. So were there any other injuries that you were aware of other than your legs? Not initially. Okay. I mean, I, and there weren't, there really weren't any, uh, to be perfectly honest. I just had some shrapnel wounds to my, my uh, butt buttocks and some burns on my hands. But really besides that, and yeah, I think I had a what a grade three concussion or whatever. But mm-hmm. uh, besides that, I really those really are my only injuries. And then I had to have a colostomy due to my rear end injuries. They didn't want any kind of fecal matter getting uh, into those wounds. Gotcha. And so they did a colostomy on me, but that was I didn't have any intestinal uh, injuries or anything. I just had it was just out of kind of necessity to to make sure that my my other wounds stay clean. Hey, everybody, just a quick pause from the podcast to give you a word about my friends at My Front Page Story. Look, Father's Day is coming up, and if your dad is anything like mine, your dad loves the newspaper. I think everybody's dad loves the newspaper. Well, give him the cover story he deserves for being such an awesome dad at MyFrontPageStory.com. Guys, I did this for my mother on Mother's Day, and I can tell you she was so emotionally moved by what My Front Page Story does. It is the absolute perfect gift for Father's Day as well. Telling your dad you had a story written about him as a gift for Father's Day is pretty much the coolest thing you can tell someone when giving a gift. Watching him read it and trying not to get choked up, just like my mom did, will be even better. What happens is you'll talk to a writer for about 10 minutes about your dad, and they'll write an amazing story about him and send it to you, and he will love it. I guarantee you it is an absolute win of a gift. So instead of going the old route for Father's Day, you know, socks, a tie, a gift card... Give him something that he'll actually remember forever and go to MyFrontPageStory.com and be sure to use the promo code HazardGround20. Once again, MyFrontPageStory.com and the promo code HazardGround20 to set up an interview today to tell the story about your dad on Father's Day. MyFrontPageStory.com and the promo code HazardGround20. Now back to this week's episode. When you look down at your legs for the first time, what do you remember seeing? 
Uh, I mean, they're just totally wrapped up in gauze. So yeah, when I woke up, you know, I looked down and it was just basically just, you know, you can see the, where the, the bumps of your legs are, the bumps of your thighs are, and then, you know, there's no bump where the rest of your legs should be. And then, uh, yeah, they were just kind of wrapped up in gauze and they had tubes coming out of them uh, that went to wound vac machines. How many surgeries did you end up having to fight off the infection and everything else? As far as, you know, amputations, did they, did they have to keep cutting more off or? They didn't keep cutting more off, uh, really. They just did a series of debridement surgeries, um, which really weren't that serious. You know, I, I think I was going in for surgery every other day for the first month. Uh, so I probably had something like 20 uh, surgeries. Uh, but the biggest surgery they did on me, I think I think I might have still had my uh, kneecap on my left leg. And then I have very vague, I don't know if they, I have very vague memories of this. I think I had my kneecap over there. And then they, I think they took that off. Um, and then um, the other major surgery that I had was a skin graft from my left thigh to the inside of my right thigh because I was missing a bunch of skin on the inside of my right thigh, so they had to put the skin on there. Those are kind of the two biggest um, biggest operations I had, but every other one was just putting me unconscious and kind of clearing away non-viable tissue or infected tissue. Gotcha. All right, so now the rehab portion starts. Um, yeah. In retrospect, when you look back on it, how difficult was this whole thing? Um. The rehab, uh, it's, I mean, psychologically, I didn't find it to be particularly difficult because uh, I just, somehow I have a natural ability to, to accept the situation that I'm in and just move on with what I, with what I need to get accomplished. Um, so I did, I never really struggled too much psychologically. The hardest part um, from a psychological standpoint for me was being in a wheelchair um, and not being totally self-sufficient. So like, uh, if I wanted to go out to the movie theater, I'd have to get a ride from a buddy and I'd have to wheel up to their side of their car and they'd have to take my wheelchair and put it in their trunk. And, uh, I had a girlfriend at the time and I remember one time she had this really small car. So we put my wheelchair in her trunk and it kind of got stuck mm -hmm. because of my wheelchair. And then she had to go back there for like a half hour trying to get it unstuck. And I'm just sitting there in the car, not able to help. So things like that were the most difficult psychologically, but that wasn't, you know, that improved every day and then improved drastically once I started having prosthetics that I could walk around with. It's interesting that you say that psychologically it wasn't difficult because many of the people I've talked to say the psychological part is the more difficult than the physical part. <laughs> yeah. A little bit of an anomaly, I think. Okay. Uh, in terms of that, uh, I almost, I almost, I hesitate to say it, but I almost was a little bit excited, uh, when I, when I woke up or because I don't know, there was part of me that was like just sitting there thinking, well, this is, you know, this has happened. And I was almost a little bit excited to see what I could do with prosthetics and excited to have this little almost project to work on, uh, you know, relearning how to walk and figuring how far I can take prosthetics and figure, see what I could learn and that kind of thing. So I was almost a little bit, ex a little bit excited about the situation. Uh, obviously 
I was always I would have preferred to have my legs and everything, but uh, no, knowing that there's no there's no going back from that point, um, I kind of got a little bit excited to see to see what I could do with the prosthetics. Um, so the most difficult part for me, and it, when I say the rehab was physically grueling, it was, and that's not particularly difficult. It's just you know it's like going in for two workouts every day uh with a little bit of extra pain uh kind of injury type pain that you have to endure uh so yeah and there were frustrations along the way from a psychological standpoint of you know trying to figure out how to learn stuff and practice things and not getting it on the first time and having to try and try and try and fail and fail and fail um but yeah i mean the 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 physical aspect of it was, you know, just pretend like you're training for a marathon or something, and then you have to do two week, two uh, two workouts every day, six days a week or five days a week, uh, and that's kind of describes the the physical the physical grueling aspect of it, where it hurts, but it just hurts because you're doing a workout, uh, really. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I'd been I was pretty used to doing workouts. Uh, and I really enjoyed doing workouts. And so I, you know, I really enjoyed physical therapy because I was, I was working out, I work out five days a week and, uh, you know, learn how to do, learn how to use these, these prosthetics. Do you remember the first day that you kind of were walking again and felt comfortable for the first time? Um, I remember, uh, I remember the first time. I walked and it was, it was quite painful because, uh, my legs were still very sensitive and they're not used to, uh, wearing prosthetics. And there's a lot of spots that you have to figure out where it's the, the leg is putting pressure on certain points of your, your stump. Um, so that was pretty painful, but that's kind of like, you know, almost like having blisters or something on your foot or on your knee or something like that. And so, uh, a little bit like that, that kind of pain, um, or having a a sprained ankle that you're trying to walk on might be a better. Mm-hmm. So that level of pain. Uh, I think the first time I felt really confident walking around was uh, in order to. It was probably three months in, and it was in order to graduate to using bionic knees you had to be able to walk from the outpatient uh, the outpatient housing called the malone house to the physical therapy clinic and back without using canes and so i just decided i wanted to try this one day on a sunday i think and and i did it and then when i got back from that i felt that's when i started to feel like i'm going to be able to walk you know everywhere i go without using a wheelchair without using canes and you know, I'm going to be able to do this. And then, so that's kind of the first day I remember feeling really confident about my walking ability. And the only reason I asked that is because as the old saying goes, you have to walk before you can run, which leads you to, you know, exactly. running a whole bunch of marathons and, and actually becoming a uh, bronze medalist in the Paralympics. Uh, but that was actually in, it was in rowing, but um, to that end, mm-hmm. when do you get to a point where you're feeling like, all right, well, I've now graduated to where I can be competitive at these things? 
Um, I started learning how to row. Let me think. I I found out about Paral- the Paralympics when I was in that first month after I got injured, because I was just in bed researching sports that I can do. I liked working out, and so uh, I kind of identified my injury as an opportunity to maybe live the life of an athlete. That I and I'd always been kind of interested in that. So uh, it was kind of my opportunity to live the life of an athlete. And uh, so I started looking up disabled sports, and I found rowing. And it turns out rowing was in the Paralympics. And I remember rowing was really difficult from uh, doing workouts on the rowing machine. And so I kind of had that in the back of my mind. And it turned out there was a place where I could learn this thing called para-rowing nearby in D.C., so I kind of had that in the back of my mind as I started the recovery process and rehab. Uh, and that took me through, you know, fall and winter time. And then once I kind of got confident walking, that's when I started going for rowing lessons and things just kind of fell into place. You know, uh, I took naturally to it. I really enjoyed it. Um, and it just so happened my rowing coach knew another, uh, double of me athlete, uh, named Oksana that uh, also wanted to go to the Paralympics and loved rowing. And we kind of did a, we got together one time, we rowed together and we rowed really well together. And so all these things kind of snowballed into, uh, by the time I retired, we had decided that we were going to try and make the Paralympics in 2012. And it just so worked out, you know, the Paralympics were the next year in 2012. And so um, that's when I, once I retired is when I started seriously training for the Paralympics, but I had made the decision that we were going to, to try and do that probably in fall, maybe in September of uh, 2011. Well, this is crazy because uh, let me just give people the timeline here. July 22nd, 2010 is the date of your injury. And the mm-hmm. 2012 Paralympics, which you competed in, were late summer, you know, August, September timeframe of 2012, just two years and a month later. Like that's an insane mm-hmm. amount of time to, to to be at that level and turn it around. Yeah, you know, um, I had, yeah, I had to, I had a pretty quick turnaround from when I I lost all my muscle mass, obviously in fall of 2010, uh, and then so I had to regain all that back and learn how to row and do all these things. I will tell you that it's a little bit easier to do that at the Paralympic level um, to kind of have that quick of a turnaround. Um, because there aren't as many athletes uh, that are trying to compete mm-hmm. at the Paralympic level. So you can get to the Paralympic level a little bit faster, and that doesn't mean that in order to win, you don't have to train uh, at the same intensity and with the same intellect and same dedication as uh, Olympic athletes. But if you look at the sport of rowing, for example, when I did uh, trials to determine the national team, there were two boats that were racing in the trials race to determine the national team in 2012. Uh, whereas if you go to the Olympic side of things, there were probably 30 different doubles that were all trying to get that one spot. So that, you know, there's, so there is a smaller pool of athletes in the Paralympic category versus the Olympic category that does allow you to kind of have this little bit faster of a turnaround uh, like that. But, you know, when we were training, you know, you compare our training to the, that of uh, Olympic training, it took the same dedication and attention to detail and all that stuff uh, as it would for, for an Olympic athlete. So 
you also start running at an extremely competitive level, and you went so far as to complete 31 full 26.2-mile marathons in 31 days in 31 cities. Now, for somebody who's yeah, healthy, that's maniacal. So <laughs> what prompted this? Like, I mean, you know, and I skipped actually the bike ride because that happened chronologically first. So after you become a bronze medalist in rowing, then you decide to bike cross country. Like, you know, what, what, what's misfiring in your head at this point? <laughs> uh, you know, what's misfiring is that uh, I realized that rowing, as much as I enjoyed it, and it kind of, it helped me to regain self-confidence and self-reliance in my physical abilities um, there wasn't a whole lot of selfless purpose behind it. There wasn't a whole lot of meaning behind rowing besides just, you know, going to the a race every year and trying to win. Um, so I, and my purpose in life was to, you know, find the selflessness and courage and brotherhood that I've been seeking, uh, when I joined the Marine Corps. And so I needed, I, I knew that I was going to need something else in order to satisfy that. So I thought that maybe, doing this incredible endurance challenge could be my way of, of accomplishing that goal. And so, uh, I had learned how to ride a bike in physical therapy and I was the first double above the amputee, uh, to go through all three, you know, that had ever figured out how to ride a bike on my own. And then also I was, I think I was one of two double above the amputees in the whole world that could, uh, that could do that. That could actually mount and dismount a bicycle and ride it around, you know, on my own with no help. And so I wanted to put that skill to use. And so uh, what I decided to do was do a cross-country bike ride and also raise money for veteran charities at the same time. Tell me about bike riding across the country because, uh, you know, it, as soon as you hear going cross-country, everybody immediately thinks Forrest Gump, right, when he's just running. Um, but <laughs> the path, I mean, what was it like? Where were you guys stopping? Where were you sleeping? What's this whole experience? Um, so I decided I wanted to make it a diagonal trip. So I, um, we started October of uh, 2013, and I started in Bar Harbor, Maine. And so what I did was I rode down the coast from Bar Harbor to uh, to Richmond, Virginia, and then I rode straight across from Richmond to uh, San Francisco, and then I rode from San Francisco down to Camp Pendleton, and that was the uh, completion of the ride. Uh, and I did that because I didn't want anybody to be able to say, sure, he rode across the country, but he could have done it, you know, in a longer fashion. You know, I, like you could ride across from south, you know, north Florida to Los Angeles. And but people, somebody could say, yeah, but he could have rode across the middle or he could have rode across. it." So I didn't want anybody to say, have it, be able to apply any kind of butts to what I did. So I rode, that's why I did this diagonal trip. And I did it in the wintertime because um, I knew I was going to be riding in the winter at some point. And I figured that'd just be, well, actually, I, I did it in the wintertime because I I tend to overheat in the summertime. So I figured the wintertime might be, it'd be more difficult in its own way, but it would probably be a little bit better for me. Uh, and then the way it would work would be I would ride between 30 and 35 miles a day. And my little brother, who was 18, um, he drove a U-Haul box truck that I had bought mm -hmm. that had probably 250,000 miles on it. And we <laughs> put uh, rugs in the back and camping cots and stuffed it full of food and supplies. 
and he would just drive that thing behind me, kind of protecting me from traffic and also a little bit of an advertisement yeah. uh, for what I was doing. And most drivers didn't really mind getting stuck behind us uh, when they passed me. And then uh, at the end of the day, I would just kind of find a good stopping point to pull over, and we would load my bike in the back of the, the U-Haul truck. And usually over the course of the day, we would have seen somewhere that would be a good place to camp. Uh, and we would just drive the, the drive the truck to that place, like a church parking lot or a school parking lot on a weekend or a vacant lot or something like that. And we'd just park up and we'd sleep in the back. Um, and that was for the first month. But then eventually my, my volunteer team got really good at calling ahead of where I was going to be and contacting hotels. Uh, and convincing them to let us stay there for free for the night. And so the vast majority of the time we were staying in free hotels, uh, but uh, we still had that option of, of the staying in the truck if we had to. And we just kind of followed that pattern. I think every 10th day I would take a day off. Um, up and down, you know, mountain after mountain after mountain. Yeah. <laughs> until this 181 days and 5,181 miles until uh, the finish line. Most beautiful sight that you looked at while pedaling that you remember? Probably South Utah um, for a variety of reasons. Um, at that point, let's see, it's just a beautiful area to begin with. I had never been in that. I forget which, which national park we were riding through, but it was this 100-mile stretch of pretty much no cell service, um, no towns. So we were camping out in the, via, in the, in the truck, and it was kind of the first warm weather we had had since, you know, December. This is the polar vortex here. So since December of 2013, uh, this was probably early March 2014 that I was running through Utah. Uh, so it was the first warm weather. I was running a T-shirt, and it was just really cool. Great views, camping out, you know, in the middle of this state park every night. And so I'd say that was probably the most beautiful part of it. And then obviously the finish line. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so as I said earlier, if, if this wasn't enough, you decided to run 31 marathons in 31 days. Yeah, that was in uh, fall of 2017. That was just a way of kind of continuing that mission. Um, I tried to make the Paralympics again in 2016 triathlon, but I wasn't successful. And over the course of that time, I realized, all right, kind of rediscovered my natural talent for, for running. I'd always been pretty good at it. Uh, and during the course of my, uh, triathlon training, I decided I was going to run the Marine Corps marathon just for fun. And I did pretty well. I didn't, I, the only distance I had run, uh, in training for it was 5k. And I was able to do this marathon in like four hours and four and a quarter hours. And so I was like, yeah, I might actually be pretty good at the, at the marathon distance. And I was able to get my 5K time down to 18 minutes flat, Wow! which is uh, maxim maxing out the uh, Marine Corps PFT. Um, yeah, seriously, I can't do that. So <laughs> it took a lot of training, but uh, yeah, you know, and so I was able to do that. And so I figured, well, after uh, I failed to make the Paralympics in 2016, I wanted to continue to uh, be a veteran advocate and veteran you know, raise money for veteran charities. And so what I wanted to do with the month of marathons was create a story um, about a veteran that went overseas and experienced extreme trauma and came back and became stronger because of it and actually thrived from it. And so I wanted to 
that story to be out there because the only stories I really saw in the media, and that's news media, movies, TV shows, everything pretty much, uh, was the story of the veteran that went overseas, experiences the war and comes back, uh, a basket case basically. And, you know, it just kind of implodes and, you know, almost destroys the family and, and that kind of thing. And um, I just wanted both sides of the story to be out there because right. I, I felt like, uh, you know, you look at the statistics and 7% of combat veterans come back and, and have PTF of some sort and 25% of non-combat um, troops come back and experience PTS of some sort. So it's the vast minority of, of people, um, but somehow we only heard about that story. That's the only story that we heard. And so I didn't want to say, well, we shouldn't be hearing that story anymore because obviously that's an extremely important story to be hearing, but I just wanted both sides of the story to be out there. So as a person who didn't struggle with post-traumatic stress, uh, that experienced trauma and experienced war, I wanted to just create an example of somebody that, uh, you know, that it is possible for somebody to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this was my way of, you know, of doing that was the marathon, the monthly marathons. Well, you certainly made that point evidently clear, but you didn't stop there because (laughs) July 22nd, 2010 was the date of your injury. July 22nd, 2019, you announced that you are running for Congress in Virginia's 10th congressional district. Uh, Where does this idea come from? How does it start? And, you know, what was the impetus for doing this whole thing? Sure. You know, what I realized over the course of the the time that I did all these things that we've been talking about is that the the purpose of my life, the reason that I'm on this earth, is to help other people realize their purpose in life. That's uh, the theme that I've been able to identify that runs through all these things. And so when I when I kind of moved back home, um, I realized that uh, the best way for me to be able to help the most amount of people uh, from my home, from where I grew up, is to uh, to enter into the role of government and support policies that are going to keep us all on the uh, the path of prosperity. And I didn't see our current representative doing that. I think um, our current representative was actually taking us in in the opposite direction uh, uh, in supporting policies that were going to reduce our prosperity. So I kind of identified that as my uh, the next thing that I could do in order to help as many people as possible uh, in my lifetime. Now, you are not running as the only uh, – you're running as a Republican, but you're not running as the only Republican uh, going up against the Democratic incumbent. Just another challenge yeah. in your way, another hurdle for you to clear or what? <laughs> Um, I would just say, yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly going to be a challenge. I, I'm going to accept whatever the, uh, the voters decide as, uh, the person that they want their nominee to be. Uh, and I have great respect for, for all the other nominees as well. So, you know, I don't really see them as, as hurdles. Um, I think what I see this as is, uh, just helping people decide who, who they think is going to be the best, um, the best uh, nominee that they can get? That's going to have the greatest chance to uh, to defeat the uh, the Democratic incumbent. Let's say, hypothetically speaking, you win the nomination and you win the election. Two years down the road, after that, and you, we're in twenty twenty two, having this same conversation. 
What do you hope that people are saying about you as an elected official? I'm hoping, I mean, I, I, my plan is that they will be talking about the, uh, the results that I've gotten for people here uh, and all the, the issues that, uh, you know, that are kind of specific to us and then also national issues. So, you know, obviously in Northern Virginia, we have a big traffic congestion problem. And so I want them to be talking about the results that I've gotten there. I want them to be talking about the results that I've gotten, you know, protecting the Second Amendment and the results with uh, health care reform and immigration reform and all these things. I want them to be talking about the results. And I also want them to be talking about me being uh, somebody that gives them hope uh, for their own lives. And then also me being somebody that gives them hope uh, in terms of being able to trust and believe in their elected officials again. Uh, as people that are selfless and not out for themselves and are, in fact, out for their, the best interest of their constituents. And as a person that has really helped us um, bridge this, bipart- this partisan divide that we're, that we're in right now and kind of bring, bring civility back into the, uh, the political arena. Those are the things I really want that I hope that everybody's talking about. Well, look, it's an amazing, amazing, amazing story. Uh, what you've accomplished physically is more than most completely healthy non-amputees could accomplish in a lifetime. And uh, you've done it in a relatively short amount of time. And the cherry on top is that, uh, you know, you're hoping to be one of the people who is going to lead this country and the state of Virginia going forward. And, and to that, I can't, you know, uh, the inspiration, man. I, I don't even know how to, how to put it in words because I feel like it doesn't sell it, you know, it doesn't do it enough justice for everything that you've done. Uh, It's just incredible. Uh, I think that, you know, people can learn from everything that that you've gone through and the fact that you keep pushing forward. And I'm sure there were some dark times for you, Rob. I mean, can you talk about some of those dark times and moments if they existed and what they were like for you? There really weren't very many, uh, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, And they were all, if I did have any, they were very brief, you know, five, ten seconds at a time. and they all kind of centered around the uh, that initial period that I was talking about, where I, I felt like a little, I felt a little helpless. Uh, not, well, not necessarily helpless, but um, I felt like my my capabilities were so reduced, and it, it was a little bit frustrating. Um, and I felt a little bit like a failure for not being able to find the IED that I stepped on. Um, so this would probably be, but it was very, very rare that I would ever kind of, uh, think about that kind of stuff to the point where, you know, I'd get that thousand yard stare or whatever, uh, for, for very brief periods. And then to this day, I'm not saying like everything is, uh, you know, sunshine and butterflies and rainbows. Um, sometimes when I can't do certain things, it is frustrating because I can't do absolutely everything. You know, I can't, uh, an example of this is I was, I had these little, uh, wire hangers uh, for road signs for the campaign. And I had maybe, I don't know, 500 of them. And they're all in kind of 30, bundles of 30. And I'm trying to throw them from the back of my truck into this uh, upper part of a, a barn that we have on my property. And I just can't get the phone because of the balance. And so it was extremely, and I got extremely frustrated with that. Um, because, you know, when I was able-bodied, I would have been able to throw these things in here one hand, no problem. Um, 
but here I was like putting out my maximum effort to get these things into that little space and they just weren't going because I just don't have the, the lower trunk mm-hmm. musculature to balance correctly and, and throw these things. And so, yeah, it's just little stuff like that, that I can't, uh, that's, that it takes a lot more effort to do, uh, that, uh, you know, that, that can frustrate me from time to time. Uh, but you know, what I do is I rely on, on the people around me and on my wife, you know, she and my, and my friend Adam, you know, they, they went and threw those things up there on my behalf. And, you know, I talk about all these things that I've done over the course of the last however many years. And, uh, it's just important to, to point out that I didn't do any of it alone. I was pretty much the, I was the one guy at the front that, uh, you know, uh, like in a football game, the, the running back is running and, you know, he gets stopped by a, a team of, uh, of the defense guys. And then his team kind of like are pushing him forward in this big mass. And it's kind of like that where I have this, these teams of people that are all kind of pushing me forward in front of themselves and they're not getting any of the credit, but you know, uh, there, none of these things would have happened without, without those people. So, I just rely on the people that I, I trust in my life in order to uh, get the things done that I can't do myself. Again, just a, an, an amazing uh, set of circumstances that you've overcome. And uh, I don't think this is the end by any stretch, even if uh, this run for Congress doesn't work out the way you want. I know that there is another path for you that I'm sure uh, of the greatest resistance that you will absolutely find to take. <laughs> it doesn't seem like the path yeah, of least resistance. Yeah, you're right, man. I mean... <laughs> My goal in life, my goal in life is to live a meaningful life and to live an enjoyable life. Right. And exemplify courage, brotherhood, and selflessness. So, amen. This is just you know, joining the Marine Corps is one way to do that. Uh, going to the Paralympics is one way to do that. Riding my bike across the country in the month and a half hours, those are both one way to do that. And then uh, running for Congress, I think, is the best way for me to do that right now. But it's just another way that I can do it. And then if it doesn't work out for 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 whatever reason. I will think of something else that can accomplish that goal. So, you know, I, I have no fear there. Uh, and that's kind of why I can be, I can be a good congressman and be a good politician because I know that this isn't the only way, the only thing that I can do with my life that's going mm-hmm. to, that's going to help people. Uh, and so when it ends, that's when it ends. Well, I'll just to, move on to the next thing. To that end, Rob, I mean, leadership is the one thing that's missing in politics more than anything. I've said that forever. I'll continue to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can be a politician, but it's probably better to be a leader. You'll go a lot farther in that industry and, and a lot more will get done if you choose leadership over politics. Uh, and we need more people like mm-hmm. you standing up there with the right voice and the right mindset and willing to make tough decisions and, you know, do what's best for everybody involved because it's the right thing to do. And, and leadership is paramount. And sometimes, in these sort of confusing back and forth times where everything is partisan, leadership never is because leadership isn't about partisanship. It's about, you know, being out in front and doing what's right and making people understand uh, why you're doing what you're doing and how to get them to agree to it. And, and again, that is uh, the challenge of, of all leaders, both in the military and out. And certainly I would expect nothing less from you, uh, whether you win the seat or not. I think leadership is, you know, where you're headed and harder or is that. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, man. I think that's a great way to wrap it up. Where can people go if they would like to find out more about what you're running for, or even if they're not in the state of Virginia, you know, just to help you out and donate, where can they go? Yeah. So obviously we've talked about a couple things 
a couple different aspects of my life here. So if you're interested in the political uh, aspect of my life now, um, robjonesforcongress.com is the website. Make donations there. Uh, read about everything that I believe in there. Um, and then the uh, social media handles are Twitter, Rob Jones VA, and then Facebook and Instagram, Rob Jones for Congress. Uh, now, if you don't care about that stuff and you uh, you care more about my personal life and my philanthropical endeavors, uh, then you can head on over to robjonesjourney.com, and then all my social media is at robjonesjourney. Again, Rob and Jones. I'm still raising money. You know, I still have uh, uh, there's still links up on that website um, where you can donate to the charities that I supported. Um, there's just direct links to the charities themselves. So if you want to donate to any of those charities, then uh, you can do you can do so there as well. It doesn't go through me. It just goes directly to them. Excellent stuff. Uh, again, thank you so much uh, for your honesty and certainly uh, being so open and willing to share about uh, some of the toughest moments. But, again, the, the overcoming of all those things, I think, uh, is the key part of the story and the inspiration that you are to people who have heard this. So again, I thank you for your time. I know it's precious. So certainly thank you for spending some time with us, Rob Jones. And thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground podcast. It's my pleasure, brother. I appreciate you having me on. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.